If you would, take your Bibles, please, and open to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. We have, for the past few Sundays, been doing a series of meditations. It came after our series on miracles, which, at least for me, gave insight into the reality of the communal nature of faith. That is, we can believe for one another. If one of us says, I am finding it difficult, if not impossible, to believe or to trust God, we can assure that person, that's okay, we will believe for you. This runs counter to our individualistic notion of things. Yes, each one of us is, as an individual, to put our trust in God. We are to believe what he has done through the Lord Jesus, what he is doing in our lives right now, and what he will do in the future. But we are not alone in this project. And if there is a theme to this meditations, it is precisely that. We are not alone. And so we considered other things by way of meditation. Gratitude, love, hope, joy. And then last Sunday we looked at trials, as mentioned in the second verse here of James chapter 1. And I want to go over just a couple things that we considered last week. First of all, When James writes, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind, the word that he uses is not so much face, somehow we think that we come up against trials, but that they ambush us. He uses the same word that Jesus did in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that a certain man was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and there he was ambushed by some thieves. Trials are not always anticipated. Trials of many kinds, as James puts it. So I've mentioned last week, somehow I think for us, we think if I can just anticipate this, if I can just see it coming, I'll be able to handle the trials. But in reality, they ambush us. They come in the form we do not expect. They come from a source or sources we may not expect as well. The second thing, and I mentioned this last week, is that the word or the root word for trial, which is found in verse 2 and in verse number 12, is translated, or it comes from the same root word, as tempt or temptation. So if you look at verse number 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And then verse number 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. But then look at verses 13 and 14. When tempted, and there it comes from the same root word as trial. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So right away we might see that there's a problem Um, In the New Testament, these words are used in two distinctive ways. The first is the idea of the outward trial, that which is outside of us, that in a sense comes to us. It's a process of testing. Um, Peter said, do not be surprised at at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. But then there is also that which starts inside of us. It's not outside of us, but it starts within us. It is an enticement to sin. Here in James chapter 1, and we're not looking at James as such, we're sort of meditating on what he talks about, but in verses 2 through 11, he deals with the first one, the external trials. And then in verses 12 to 19, he deals with the internal struggles. 
So the first is trials and the second is temptations. In verses 3 and 4, he deals with the purpose of trials. They actually do have a purpose. They test our faith. They test, in the testing of our faith, it produces staying power or endurance. And staying power will finish its work. It brings about maturity. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the second section, it is an abrupt change. And here he talks about being tempted. What is the connection? How can, how can James, he's using Greek, but how can he use words that on the one hand mean trial and on the other mean, on the other hand they mean temptation? What is the connection? How, how can they seem to go in, for us, opposite directions? What we find is that they are tests. And as it comes, as it ambushes us, we have one of two choices. We can see it as an opportunity to move forward, and then it becomes a trial. Or, in fact, we can see it as a temptation to go backwards, and then it becomes a temptation. So the very same thing that happens to a person can either be a test of the faith, and they can grow, they can move forward, or it can end up as a temptation, and they can go backward. By the way, I think by personal experience, you can have the same thing happen to you at two different times. And on the one hand, you'll say, boy, this is a testing of my faith. And on the other hand, later on, you might say, well, I don't know. You know and then suddenly you find yourself going backwards. It's become a temptation instead. There's one thing that I failed to mention last Sunday, but perhaps you had already made the connection in your thinking because of the series on meditations. While each one of us may face or will face trials, we don't have to face them alone. We should not face them alone. This is a recurring theme throughout these meditations. We are not alone in this. Look, if you would, at verses 2 through 5 of James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. We saw in the previous weeks that oftentimes people mistake Joy for happiness. If you're joyful, then you must be happy. And we saw last week that people, in fact, see trials as suffering. If you're going through a trial, you must be suffering. As I mentioned last week, not at all. In fact, oftentimes a trial may come in the form of something wonderful, And that wonderful thing that has come to you may be a temptation to go backward rather than to go forward. The example we find in scripture is of manna. God miraculously provided food for the Israelites. But God told Moses, I'm doing this to test them. Manna was a trial to see if the people of God would obey him. But when it comes to the matter of wisdom, which is the subject of our meditation today, I think most of us know that wisdom and intelligence are not the same thing. That wisdom and knowledge are not the same. To be wise is not necessarily to be brilliant. But what does it mean to be wise? 
what is wisdom? Let me suggest here a definition um, as we begin our meditation. Wisdom is the ability to connect the principle with the application. That is, this is what you should do, and wisdom directs you, and you do what you should do. Or, if you are told this is what you should not do, then wisdom says you should not do that, and you do not do that. And in that, you are being wise. Like joy, wisdom is mentioned in two different passages in James. And like joy, the first one is a very positive thing, and the second one is not. If you remember in looking at joy, our meditation on joy, um, in the second time, James says, you need to get rid of your joy. You need to abandon joy. It's like, wait a minute. Joy is the confident assurance that God has taken care of me. He will take care of me. He will continue to do so in the future. Why would James say to abandon it? Well, we looked at that when the series uh, or the sermon on joy. James does the same thing with regard to wisdom. Here we find it in a very positive way that if we want wisdom, we should ask of God. But then when we get to chapter 4, we find a very, very different picture. It's actually chapter 3. And if you want to look there, chapter 3, verse number 13. Actually, 13 through 18. Starts out positively, and then it becomes negative. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, and you'll notice in the NIV it has it in quotation marks, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So we see that James uses wisdom in at least three ways. First of all, it is that which is given to God as a gift. That's in our text. Secondly, it is marked by right conduct. That's chapter 3, verse 13. Good life, deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But then the third way he uses it in verses 15 and 17 of chapter 3, that which is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It is of the devil. What does James mean when he talks about wisdom? If we read the Gospels, we find wisdom is used in at least two ways. First of all, in speaking about Jesus. So we are told in Luke 2, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then Matthew chapter 13, coming to his hometown, the people he was raised with, he began teaching in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So we see that wisdom is used about Jesus. But then we see that Jesus uses it in his teaching, in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end when he talks about the wise man and the foolish man, that the wise man builds his house on the rock and the foolish man builds it on sand. In his parables, he contrasts the wise and the foolish. Zib read to us several weeks ago of the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. 
And what we see in the teachings of Jesus and in the life of Jesus is that wisdom is something that develops. Jesus grew in wisdom. We do not fully understand what Jesus was like, the incarnation. Because somehow we imagine that he knew everything from the very beginning, but we see that he had to grow in wisdom. It is something that we grow, it develops in us. Secondly, we see that it involves hearing and doing. It means that we do what we are supposed to do. But it also speaks of being prepared, like the ten virgins. Five were prepared and five were not. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He must have been familiar with the teachings of Jesus, and I think his readers were as well. But for them, the Bible, the scripture, was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has a lot to say about wisdom. It has plenty to say about it. In fact, we have several books that are known as the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Job, Proverbs, some of the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. You might imagine, if you're familiar with them, if you've read through, they tell us very different things about wisdom. In Job, we see that the order of the universe is hidden from us. We just don't know what's going on. In Proverbs, Solomon seems to say it's cause and effect. If you do these things, then this will be the result. If you don't do these things, then possibly bad things could happen to you. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher, in a sense, throws his hands up and just sort of gives up and says, I I can't make sense of it whatsoever. So Proverbs is all about cause and effect. Job says this is not sufficient because I obey God, I sacrifice, I pray, and have these bad things happen to me. In Ecclesiastes, again, Solomon basically says it's impossible. You can't talk about cause and effect. So what does the Old Testament, we're getting missed messages, what does it tell us about wisdom? It's used, I would say, in at least three different ways. First of all, it talks about people that, in modern language, we would say are talented, those who are gifted, those who have particular skills. And we see this in Exodus chapter 31, when God gives Moses instructions about building the tabernacle, and he talks about certain people who are wise, and that he will give them wisdom so that they can construct the tabernacle. Secondly, it is used in terms of life skill. That is, a person knows how to live his or her life, how to conduct themselves. And lastly, it is used with regard to understanding and knowledge. So it's about ability, it's about life skill, it's about understanding. And I think we're okay with that. That sort of makes sense to us. But the real issue is, at least for me, is how do you get wisdom? This is where it gets interesting to me. Because on the one hand, in Proverbs, we are told that you get wisdom by observing. Watch what's going on and you will learn what you should do and what you should not do. We're also told that it can be passed on from, by instruction, that a father can teach his son, this is how you're supposed to live. Um, Proverbs 4, listen, my son, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and get understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words 
with all your heart, keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom and understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. We also see that wisdom can be learned from your mistakes. You can learn from your mistakes. Whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. We need to be corrected. We've made a mistake. We need to be corrected. And in the process, we are gaining wisdom. So this is on the one hand, this is what we see about wisdom. But on the other hand, and this is what makes it interesting or confusing, wisdom is seen as a gift from God. So the question is, okay, do I get this from my dad? Do I learn from my parents? Do I learn from my mistakes? Or is it a gift? Do I just not have to do anything and simply sit there and God will give it to me? For the Lord gives wisdom, we're told in Proverbs 2, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. But the reality is, it is God who has given us all that we have. So if I can learn from my mistakes, if I can learn, gain wisdom by watching cause and effect, if I can learn by listening and paying attention to what my parents have taught me, that's from God. That is a gift from God. So I think it's not either or. I think it's both and. It is God who gives us these things. If you read through the wisdom books, beginning in Job and going through the Song of Solomon, there is one theme that ties them all together, and it is that God is the creator. God made the world. Uh, For those who would reject the notion of God as the creator, then forget the wisdom books because they won't make any sense to you. They are rooted, they are grounded in the reality that God is the one who created us. If you don't have this, if you don't understand this or accept it, then, then I think, should I say, all is lost. You won't get it. The human mind must accept that there are things we cannot understand, but there is someone who does, and he's the one who made us all. He is the creator. The emphasis in the wisdom books, but throughout scripture, but in the wisdom books, is creation. And the foundation of creation is relationships. God made us in his image. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, the fall happened, It was the breaking of relationships, social relationships, uh, spiritual relationships, physical relationships. And when Jesus came into the world, it was to restore these relationships that had been destroyed by sin. All of this points to an essential point in the matter of wisdom. It's mentioned, I think, in all of the wisdom books. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me just read to you several passages. Job 28. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. In Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. And then in Proverbs, we see this a number of times. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then in chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes doesn't put it exactly that way, but we read this. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. 
Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. But what does this mean, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Well, let's take the second part first, the beginning of wisdom. We should not imagine that what the wisdom writers are saying is, you begin with the fear of the Lord and then you just sort of jump off into life and you will be wise. One author put it this way, what the alphabet is to reading, notes in the reading of music and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book, that is Proverbs. You can't do math without numbers, music without notes, you can't read without letters, and you cannot get wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. We cannot be wise apart from the fear of the Lord. But what is the fear of the Lord? Many people get stuck on the business of fear and, and never get past that. that. That seems to stop them in their tracks. And the idea that somehow you should be afraid of God to them seems almost offensive. That in fact something is quite wrong. And I think that in the process we have missed something very important. There is to be a relationship between us and God. That we recognize that God is the creator and we are the creatures. When we have the fear of the Lord, it means I understand that now. I'm a creature. I'm made in the image of God. He is higher. He is infinite. I'm finite. He's perfect and I'm a sinner. And when you understand that, then you, begin, you can begin to walk the path of wisdom. So it isn't so much about being afraid. There is reverence and all that. But it is, in fact, about relationships. We are to be marked by humility. And this is what we find, particularly in the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord, wisdom, and humility. The connection, they're all there. All three of these are necessary. Let me read to you a couple of verses. Proverbs 11. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. As we acknowledge, he's the creator, we are the creature. And Proverbs 15, wisdom's instructions is to fear the Lord and humility comes before honor. Again, fearing the Lord, wisdom and humility, the three are tied together. Perhaps it's most clearly spelled out, however, in Proverbs 22. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. So humility and fear of the Lord, and then we have wisdom. But again, what does it mean to be humble? What is humility? Humility means knowing who you are before God. It isn't somehow pushing yourself down in front of others to say, oh, no, no, I'm a terrible person, don't look at me, I'm, you know, whatever. No, it is acknowledging I'm a creature, and God is the one who has made me. But another aspect of the fear of the Lord is that we shun evil. And this is something that is mentioned in Job more than anywhere else. That Job is someone who feared God and shunned evil. That if we are in a relationship with God, then evil can't be part of the equation. It's something really, I cannot do that because it will destroy the relationship that I have with God. Wisdom is the right path. 
It is the path that we are to take. And this is something that we find throughout the wisdom books, that there are, in fact, two paths. We can take the path of wisdom, or we can take the path of fools. We can be fools. And this isn't, this isn't calling somebody a name. This is simply saying, you're going down the wrong path. The contrast is between being wise and being foolish, or being righteous and being wicked. And this is what we see in James chapter 3. If you look at verses 15 and 17, you find, in fact, that this demonic, this diabolical wisdom that people claim to have does not come from God, but it is, in fact, the result of broken relationships. In the book of James, we find this contrast coming up again and again, belief and unbelief being a friend of the world or a friend of God, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. But we still haven't answered our question, how do you get wisdom? Well, in our text, James says that we are to ask God, that God will give generously. And yet there is a call for humility, and he mentions the acts of a good life, deeds done in humility. In chapter 4, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The key for James, I'm convinced, is relationships. There are fights, there are quarrels. He uses the word war. There are wars between the believers. Something's wrong. The relationship with each other, even within themselves, but the relationship with God is is wrong. It's twisted. It's broken. They have wrong motives. They have selfish ambition. And as a result, James is like, God's not going to answer your prayer. We might ask, what prayer is that? Well, in our text, it says that if you need wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. So is he talking about that prayer if, if I'm a selfish person, will God not give me wisdom? I actually think that that's true. I think James is also speaking more generally. That if, in fact, we are self-centered individuals, we, in fact, will not get what we are asking for because we are self-centered. God has been pushed off the center. We are now in the center. And therefore, he does not listen to us. I want to be clear about something, that human effort, in fact, can lead to increased knowledge, but it is not enough to possess wisdom. The person who observes and experiences the world can, in fact, receive information, instruction, and correction, but it is the person who truly fears the Lord who will receive instruction from him and wisdom from him. There is no contradiction between us going to school and learning or reading a book and learning, and getting wisdom from God, or knowledge from God. But what James, I think, is pointing at, is that it requires a relationship, a relationship with God. Because why would you ask God? You want wisdom, why would you ask God? Seriously, why would you? Because he is our father. We are his children. We are in a relationship. 
So we go to our Father as children, hopefully humble children, and we say, Father, I need wisdom. And in this particular context, it's in the context of uh, trials, of going through difficulties, or maybe not difficulties, but going through things. And the question is, should I go forward? Is this the right way to go, or should I go backward? Well, we know that we shouldn't go backward, but how is it that I should go forward in the midst of these trials? The fear of the Lord means we understand our place. It means that we understand our place. We are humble. But there's something else, and hopefully this will all tie together here at the end. In the Old Testament literature, the wisdom literature, folly, foolishness, values autonomy. That is, those who are foolish want to be self-sufficient. Autonomy from two Greek words, auto, yourself, namas, law, a law to yourself. A foolish person, I will make the decisions. I will make the choices. And that's why they're called foolish, because God is there. God made you. God knows everything. You don't. And yet somehow you've decided, I know better than God. That is what a foolish person is like. But what about autonomy, not simply from God, but from one another? I would argue that when we hear the word autonomy or anything like that, we think of our relationship to God, and so we should. But I think we should also consider it in the matter of our relationships with one another. That we may act as though we don't need each other that we act as though we can get wisdom on our own. And again, in the 21st century, I think people reading James 1.5 will see it very individualistic. I need wisdom. I'm going to ask God, for, don't bother me. I'm, I'm going to ask and God's going to give me wisdom. And the idea that I actually have brothers and sisters, I have siblings, that God can use to give me wisdom doesn't seem to occur to us we have lost sight of the reality that we need each other. If you go to chapter 3 again, what he talks about, this diabolic, this demonic wisdom, is self-centered. I don't need anybody. I can figure this out on my own. That's, that's not the way of God's wisdom. And I would suggest to you that in the same way that worldly wisdom finds its context in our personal relationships, that is, I don't want any when it comes to making decisions, in the same way the wisdom that God gives us may in fact come from our personal relationships with our brothers and sisters. So there may in fact be brothers and sisters who have the wisdom that I need. I'm going through a difficult time or I'm facing certain things. I need to make certain decisions. I don't know which way to go, this way or that way. And I have in this congregation and beyond brothers and sisters who have wisdom from God who can give me direction. When we ask God for wisdom, how do we expect he will give that to us? In a dream, perhaps. In a vision, could be that God will somehow directly speak to us, possibly. But I would argue that God can give us wisdom from each other, by each other. 
This means that we will have to have humility to ask one another to say, brother or sister, I'm facing a certain situation. That may be embarrassing to us to have to admit that we're facing this this trial. Um, I need advice. Do you have any wisdom in this matter? Can you help me in this regard? And then we listen like a student. And this person can help us, can give us instruction and share their wisdom with us. And then we should be humble enough to follow the advice that has been given to us. I think for most of my adult life, I have read James 1, 5 as a very one-on-one type situation. I need wisdom. I will ask God. God will give to Damon wisdom. As we've gone through these series of meditations, I'm convinced that God will in fact give me wisdom and he has in the past through my brothers and sisters, those who have wisdom from God. Throughout these meditations, we have seen that we are not alone. We are not to act as though we are alone. As we saw in the series on miracles, we can have faith for one another. Um, The paralyzed man, his four friends dropped him through the roof in front of Jesus so that Jesus could heal him. The centurion's servant was ill. He came to Jesus. The royal official in John 4, his son was near death. He comes to Jesus. We can believe for one another. We can love one another. We're supposed to love one another. We can have hope for one another. We may, in fact, reach a point in our lives when we say, I, I've lost all hope. I've, I've lost faith. I've lost hope. And we can say to that person, that's okay. I have hope for you. You're not alone in this. We're not only to be grateful for one another, but be grateful when others cannot. Perhaps they find it difficult to be grateful in that situation. And we can say, that's okay. I'll be grateful for you. We can have joy and rejoice for one another and we can share each other's trials. Paul tells us that we are to share each other's burdens. And we can be a source of wisdom. We can look to one another for wisdom. God can use us as we help one another. I must tell you, I have been the recipient of much wisdom in this congregation. People say, well, Damon, you're the pastor doesn't make me all-knowing. There have been times when I have needed wisdom and I have found it in this congregation. And I'm very grateful for that. And on this Sunday, in a particular way, I'm grateful because Dan Nobley has been a source of wisdom for me, has given me advice and direction. I'm grateful for that. We need each other. We are not to live as though we are free agents that we can do whatever we want. We need each other. And we will always need each other. And I'm grateful to God for that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so accustomed to thinking in terms of ourselves as individuals.
we imagine that we don't need help uh, until we find ourselves really in difficult situations. That even the matter of being a Christian is just between you and us. The reality is you are our Father and we are brothers and sisters. We are the body of Christ. I am not the church. I'm a part of the church. There are times when I am weak that others are strong for me. When I cannot believe, others will believe for me. When I seem to have lost all hope, others still have hope. Going through trials, others will share my burdens. And when I need wisdom, you who are the source of all wisdom, I can find it through my brothers and sisters. I think for us at this point in time, the big obstacle is getting over the idea that we are alone. That being a Christian is just a matter of our relationship with you. And we have lost sight of our relationship with one another. Help us to think on these things and meditate on these things in the days to come. May your spirit recall them to our minds. And as James would write, may we not only be hearers of the word, but doers as well. Again, we're so grateful that Dan and Lonnie are back with us today. Continue to work in their lives. We're so thankful for them. We're thankful for you giving them to us. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.